Please turn also to the Old Testament, to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. The text for this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in war come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Father, for you are one who deals with the core issues. And we acknowledge, Father, that when you deal with the core issues in our own lives, that oftentimes is not pretty. That oftentimes it's painful. It's humbling. And yet, Father, if there is to be healing, how else can it be done? We thank you, Father, for you are one who tears down, but you are also the one who builds up. And we thank you, Father, for you build us up anew through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that our trust would not be in ourselves, but our trust would be in Jesus Christ, who indeed uh, redeems the lost. Father, we pray that you would watch over your people, that you would grant encouragement by the good news of the gospel, that if any are here who have not made commitments to you, we pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of the blind that you would open the ears of the deaf, that your Holy Spirit would grant new hearts, that there might be new life and new hope. And we pray, Father, that 
our Lord Jesus would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. What would you think of a doctor if he only treated the symptoms of problems? So you go to him, you say, hey, I have these X number of symptoms, and he says, okay, I have drugs to treat every one of those. And uh, you come back in a week, and you're saying, hey, uh, I've taken these drugs, but uh, I've taken the same doses that you recommend, the frequency that you recommend, but the symptoms are still there, and actually they're getting worse. So, okay, well, let's just up, up the symptoms, uh, up the dosage. And here, we can understand in the material world, in physical life, that, that a doctor that only treats symptoms rather than the disease itself, that this is, if anything, a worthless doctor. This is a worthless doctor. We ought not to follow such a person. And how often is it that you know, someone comes, well, doctor, I have this issue called gonorrhea. And, and the doctor is not saying, hey, you, know, you ought to consider how you might change your lifestyle because, and change your decisions because that has some effect on this disease. Or, hey, well, what about this diet that I have and the heart disease and other things that come with it? We realize that... When we think about the social realm, it's similar in those ways. We look at the rulers and the politicians. They're often thinking about the social issues in our society, in our culture. Trying to address those issues is oftentimes like trying to address the symptom of the problem. And, and everyone's excited when a, a new ruler comes a new king, and they have new plans to solve society's problems. That's like trying to treat the symptoms. It's the Lord Jesus who comes. He deals with the core issue. He deals not with the symptoms of the problem. He deals with the problem itself. And those problems are very deep. They cut very deep. And so here, even as we see the issues that come up, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, that these issues come up, and you realize that they are not the problem itself, they're merely the symptoms. So we think about how sin affects an individual, and then sin manifests itself uh, among many people in certain ways. It's just like a spread of a virus. And you think about the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Well, what is the author trying to do? He's trying to give instruction. He's trying to lead the hearer to the right place, but he uses oftentimes what, what seems like an unconventional method. He uses a different method, but we can acknowledge that, that wisdom and instruction can be given in many different ways. One of the core ideas that this author, well, let's just call him Kohelet, which means the preacher or the gatherer, that life under the sun... Life under the sun is often difficult because of the curse of the fall, because of Adam and Eve sinning against God. Or life under the sun, living under the curse of the fall, is vanity and a striving after wind. And he wants us to be able to see that life under the sun, the solar sun, is difficult. But when your life under the sun, the son of God, S-O-N, Life under the sun is very different. It brings new life. It brings new hope. Perhaps also 
making observations. This is what Kohelet does. He makes observations and, and sees that everything is very grim. This is what we see by general revelation. Eyes are open. Everything is very grim. And then he tries to point us to a different direction. And he leaves openings for questions so that we might see that in Christ, everything can be hopeful. He exhausts the human options. So when, when humans want to think, you know what, we have the answers. We can come up with our own solutions. Just like that Tower of Babel. It didn't end so well for them. We begin by excluding God and we expect somehow to obtain peace and happiness and eternal life. But the truth is, by excluding God, we have none of those things. We have none of those things. So the truth that we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 here. Humanity's fallen condition results in many social ills, reminding you to hope for the, for the heavenly rule of Christ. Humanity's fallen condition results in many social ills, reminding you to hope for the heavenly rule of Christ. We'll look at this in four points. The first is oppression. Second, occupation. Third, ostracism. And fourth, office. The first is oppression. Verses 1 through 3, again, I saw all the oppression, all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, that they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Earlier in chapter 3, the author addressed the matter of the sovereignty of God. That God has made everything beautiful in its time. And God will judge both the righteous and the wicked. And there is a time for every matter. Meaning that there was a time for the calling to account of every matter. That every deed, every careless word even, will be judged, will be settled. And here we come, Kohelet makes some further observations. And here in this passage, Ecclesiastes 4, verses 1 through 16, he makes these four observations. He points out these four four grim thoughts. And he begins it by, by saying, I saw or I looked again. So those are the four things mentioned. And each one, he says is vanity or striving after wind. The first one he addresses here is oppressions. So again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And there's no shortage of oppression in this world. He looks and he makes the comparison. There's the oppressors and the oppressed. You have uh, those who are in power and those without power. And the, the typical pattern for those who are in power, you, you ask them, why are you doing these things? You're harming these people. And the simple matter, the answer is, because I can. Because I have the power to. There is, there is no one that I need to answer to, and so I keep doing it. That I take from them. Right? I process their organs, whatever, whatever it might be. Right? And the answer is, there is no judgment. There's no God here. But there is a God. And He is great in patience. 
We must never mistake God's patience and his long suffering for the fact that he has no power or he has no ability to judge. He will judge. He will judge. In due time, he will judge. So he looks at the he looks at the comparison. He says, on one side you have the oppressor, and the other side you have the oppressed. And what we have on the side of the oppressor is power. And this is a reminder to you and to me. Oftentimes, you you see movements come, and that we might be attracted to that power. We might have that lust for power. Wow, look how powerful they are. Look how much influence they have. Look how much advertising they have. Everyone is talking about what they're doing. This goes on in the world. This goes on in the world all the time. And perhaps you might be asking, well, why isn't the church following it? Why isn't the church also following that message? Well, perhaps what we should be saying is, if the whole world is doing it, you should be concerned if the church is going to follow the world. You understand? That the world and the church are often at odds. They're not doing the same thing. The Christ teachings are completely revolutionary compared to the followings of this world. And on one side is power. And that you and I should not have a lust for power. That Jesus, in his life, manifested humility. Not power. He will return again and manifest power. But for the time being, uh, what we have in the description of his life is that he came. He came in obscurity. He, he came in weakness. And that he calls people who also share in that weakness and obscurity. But what's on the side of the oppressed? On the side of the oppressed are only tears. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. In Psalm 56, verse 8, the psalmist writes, You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? You realize that God keeps track of the tears of the oppressed. It's not as if he forgets them. It's not as if they mean nothing to him. Here, the psalmist is saying that the Lord keeps track of our tears. They're worth something to him. They're valuable to him. They're monitored. They're counted by him. If even the hairs of our head are numbered and, and accounted for, how much more so are tears? And on the side of the, of the oppressed, there's power. But here, you and I need to be reminded that there's no power or authority that exists outside of that which is given by God. Meaning God who is sovereign, who controls all things. If anyone has power, if anyone has authority, God gave it to them. And looking back at Ecclesiastes 3, verse 18, that the description there is that God is testing them to see, so that they may see that they are but beasts. Because a beast understands power. It understands the usage of power. And that's about all the beast knows. The true tragedy is not so much the tears. The true tragedy here, he mentions it twice, is that they had no one to comfort them. Initially, as I read this, it seemed as if he was talking about the oppressed and that both occasions about no one to comfort them was referring to the oppressed. But as I read it again, I realized there was no one to comfort them was talking about both the oppressed and the oppressor. So here, 
Consider this. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, but they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Who do you think makes the best oppressors? It's the people who were once oppressed. They make the most dangerous and the most ruthless oppressors. All you have to do is look at that cycle of sin. Simple examples out of child abuse. Whether you were neglected, whether you were physically, sexually abused, whatever is a uh, verbally abused, whatever is the case. It requires the work of God for a breaking of the cycle of sins. There is a gravitational pull that causes people to try to repeat that. And those who were once oppressed in child abuse are oftentimes the ones who repeat it with their own children. The cycles of abuse continue. But yet, in Jesus Christ, such cycles can be broken. It can be broken indeed. So perhaps what we ought to see here is that the, the oppressed then oppress in return, but their grief and their pain from their own oppression doesn't, doesn't disappear. Meaning, I, I thought if I could repeat this with others that somehow it would feel better. And the answer is, it doesn't. It hasn't. It hasn't felt better. So then here, he comes to this under the sun. He comes to this humanistic conclusion. Verses 2 and 3. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. So here he's saying, hey, at least the dead, they're past this pain. They're past the pain of oppression. They're, they're past the ability of being oppressed. And perhaps that's what some people are thinking when they ponder suicide. I'm going to end it all so that my pain will be gone. What they're not taking in consideration is what God has revealed. Because no one goes to the other side and comes back, right? So we have what God has given us in his word that, that all men must die. And at that point they face judgment. And outside of Christ, however difficult your life is, your worst day times 1,000 times 1 billion is still going to be better than, than the best day in hell, which never ends. So this is trading something that appears bad for a complete unknown. But God has told us what life outside of him will be, and also what eternity without him will be. Here, what the author is doing... He's making this wrong assumption for a purpose. The wrong assumption is that nothing good could ever come out of what is bad. Meaning, oppression is bad, and I'd rather die than be oppressed. And in fact, in verse 3 there he says, But better than both is he who has not been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Meaning, it's, it's better never have, to never have lived than to experience the, the pains of oppression. And we have some comfort, exceedingly good comfort, 
when we think about the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, first, what we have is someone who understands oppression. That is first and foremost, someone who understands oppression. So when you who are oppressed think, you know what? No one knows what I've been through. Well, maybe the exact situation, no one knows. But Jesus certainly understands oppression. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. When you think about what he suffered, he suffered under the political rulers. He suffered under Rome when they crucified him, when they beat him and crucified him. He suffered under the Jewish leaders because they didn't know what to make of him. They refused to give up their own power, their own privilege and authority. Yet Jesus was one who suffered under that. He identified with those who, uh, uh, who were rejected also by the Jewish leaders. And yet, Jesus, having gone through that, he doesn't wield the heavy hand upon his people. He's the one who says, come to me, all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That Jesus is the perfect model of one who was oppressed, but he did not oppress in return. He also gives us, in his life, the example, the perfect example that we ought to follow. Think for a moment about the Apostle Paul and how he talks about comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And think about how many times he mentions that word comfort. We know a bit about Paul's life, maybe just a bit, about the many times he was beaten and, and caned and shipwrecked and cold. And here he's saying those things served a purpose. He suffered so that he might understand the, the exceedingly great comfort that we have in Jesus Christ. And that part of the suffering that Paul had, he's saying, was so that he could comfort someone else with the comfort that he once had, or that he has. And so also that you and I ought to understand, well, what, what good comes out of oppression, out of suffering? Well, here, you ought to understand that what good comes out of it is that God is good. And that God is one who can bring good out of evil. That's how powerful, that's how wise, that's how holy He is. He brings good out of evil. He brings divine blessing out of human curses. So though you may have had human curses, He can turn those around. He can change those. He can transform those into divine blessings. And that as you have experienced comfort in Jesus Christ, you may comfort others with the good news of the gospel. That we have a Savior we have one who is able to empathize with us. He could sympathize with us because he underwent exceedingly great suffering. And more than that, he suffered 
not because of his own sins, because he had none. He's perfect. He suffered because of our sins, so that we might be made clean, that we might embrace the good news of the gospel and believe upon Jesus Christ, that we can be forgiven of our sins. He died on the cross so that you and I can be set free from the bondage to sin and to death. So this is the first point, that of oppression. We have the second point of occupation, verses 4 through 6. Then I saw that all toil and all sin in work comes from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Here we have the question of occupation. And it ought to be something that occupies our minds because it's something that occupies our days. That we're told to be busy. We're, We're told to do work for God's glory. But here, he brings up the question of motivation. And what he observes there, then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. So it completely changes things when you think about work and why we're doing it. How often did you as a child ask your parents the question of why? 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 And and you notice that that your parents, they just kind of got tired of answering that question. But But you realize it's an important question. We shouldn't stop asking it, children, because the why is a theological question. The why has to do with God and his purposes and, and why you ought to live. That, that the why answers God's design. It reminds us of the core issues of our hearts. So you think about the competition. It was true then, it's also true today. So you think about back then, the desire to work well, so that you can have more. Well, he has 6,000 goats. I'm going to have 6,001. And then you think about today in the workplace. Well, sometimes uh, the company, management, even wants there to be competition. There, he wants them, she wants them to have rivalry. A raises and promotions are based on performance. And so you're competing against your coworkers. And the prize is that you get this 6%, or really good to be this, this 9% raise, or, or something of that matter, depending on the, the inflation rate, depending how well your company is doing. And you realize that that 9% raise, well, most of that is going to be taxed away, right? You're not going to see half of it, at least, because that's that last dollar that you make. And then besides the difficulty of what's taken away is that you have even more work and more responsibility given to you because the company said, wow, this person, uh, he not only did uh, his job, the 40 hours, but he he did 60 or 65 hours, 70 hours. Well, then we're going to give him more work to do, more responsibility. Maybe we'll make him a manager and then even more work. And what does that gain you? And so we have the other option, 
So the opposite is extreme. So people are saying, wait, wait a minute, you're saying that we, we shouldn't work hard. No, no I didn't, didn't say that. I said we should work hard within our means and with the right motivation. But let's look at the other extreme, the other extreme in verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So some people, perhaps, they flip-flop between extremes. They, they work really, really hard. And then they're burnt out, and then they just decide to let everything go. They just let everything go. And they become a slob. And the description here is so fitting. The fool folds his hands, meaning he, his hands aren't busy. He's folding his hands. And then he eats his own flesh. So you think about the things that we can eat. Well, I could eat that bread, but I didn't, I didn't uh, plow and I didn't sow and I didn't reap. So he just sits there and starts eating his own arm because he's hungry. And, and you think about this, the warnings of Scripture. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys in Proverbs 18.9. So here, we ought not to think that the opposite extreme of laziness is ever the answer. We have rather the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So what Christ is doing now is he's at God's right hand. He's already paid the price for sin. He laid down his life. He said, it is finished. It is done. The work of redeeming God's people. But there he is continuing his work as a priest in interceding for us in prayers. And we ought to understand that Jesus sets the example for diligent work. Understand that spirits, so you think about the demons doing bad work, that they never sleep, and that angels never sleep, that, that Jesus is in heaven. He intercedes for us. But while he was on earth, he had all the limitations of man, meaning that he needed to sleep, he needed to eat, and that he balanced his day, his time perfectly. And perhaps we ought to understand that... Uh, there is a way to make decisions based on what the Lord has given you so that we can plan our day and get enough done. Because in any job, there's always so much more work that you can work 24 hours and not be done. So for Jesus, he would have decided perfectly, understand that we need rest. We need to invest in relationships. We're going to get to that in the third point. And you think also about what he has commanded us to do. He's given us certain warnings. He who does not work shall not eat. So you think about society. There are people who don't work but want to eat. And perhaps there are those who say everyone should be able to eat. But the Lord has told us, he who does not work shall not eat. So if you want to eat, you ought to be willing to work. And we're also told that uh, in Colossians 3, 23 to 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Ultimately, we're not serving a certain company. We're not serving our boss. The reminder here in God's word is that we're serving him, and he's the one who gives us our reward. So the motive should not be for work simply to have more 
to have more things to play with, to have more than your neighbor, but rather it should be for God's glory. The Lord knows there's only 24 hours a day, and at the end of the day, we're doing our work, and we're trusting by faith that he will provide for our needs. And so this is occupation. We have the third point of ostracism in verses 7 through 12. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Here, he... He transitions into the next subject. So he talks about occupation, talks about work. And he's still talking about work even as he transitions into talking about this ostracism or, or being isolated, being lonely. And the first issue he describes is that the desire for more, the greed for more, the desire to outdo your neighbor often leads to this ostracism. Meaning that the, the loneliness is the effect of bad decisions, the lack, uh, the presence of earthly, worldly values rather than heavenly mindedness. So someone says, hey, I need to keep working. I need to spend all my excess hours working. And this is so that I can provide for my family. How often, how often do you hear children when they're grown and they're sitting there with their dying mother or dying father and the child is saying to his father I wish you only worked more hours for me I wish mother that you would have worked the two jobs longer and, and spent less time with me that never that who does, whoever says that no, no one ever says that the, the kid never says I wish I had more toys more money no. Well, at least they shouldn't. They shouldn't. Instead, there's this regret. Well, Dad, did you have to spend so much time away? Well, I was working all this so I could provide you all these things. You mean all the trinkets and worthless things that I, don't, I didn't need? There's, there's, there's something about investment in relationships. Let's not think that somehow our children's lives uh, are, are totally unfulfilled because they don't have all these extra pieces of wealth. And so he continues, and he gives these arguments regarding companionship. He makes these arguments regarding companionship. In verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return, a good reward for their toil. What we ought to understand from this, and I, I think back, my my pastor, when, when I was married, he preached this passage at my wedding. At my wedding. And uh, it's very applicable to a marriage. But it applies 
far greater than that of a marriage. It applies to just relationships in general. When you think about two, two are better than one. There's a good reward for their toil, meaning that if you have one person working, they have an output of X. And I think what we ought to understand is that if you have two people working, the output oftentimes is more than 2x. When they can work together, the output is even better. But then the other examples that he gives, they occur within a context, if you can think, walking in some rocky, uh, slippery place in the rural parts of Israel, of traveling on the road. And the companionship there is all that much necessary. Verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. So if you're walking in loose rock or you fall into quicksand, the guy who falls into quicksand has a tough time because gravity is against him. But if he's got a friend, a companion, he can help pull him out. If someone sprains an ankle... At least his friend can say, hey, I'll carry not only my load, I'll carry your load so that you can hop on one foot with that tree branch. There's also the matter of staying warm. The desert environment. Oh, it's really hot during the day when the sun is beating down on you. This is notorious. That the daytime it could be 100, 110, 120 degrees. But then when night comes, the temperature drops significantly. It's hard to stay warm. And as you know, you could wrap all the blankets around you that uh, if there's not another, there's not other, some other heat source, the best that you can do with all the blankets is maintain your own heat. But if there's someone else you can lie next to to keep warm, this is especially true if someone is suffering from hypothermia, having another heat source. And then there's the matter of being attacked. Being attacked. Verse 12, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's very interesting how difficult it is to fight off multiple assailants. Meaning that you can have two people who who have very average skill... But then if there's a martial artist who's going to defeat two normal, capable men, he has to be extraordinary to take on two. And what we learn here is that if you're alone and you have to fight off multiple attackers, it's going to be very hard. It's always better if you have someone who can at least watch your back. And you think about traveling on the road. We ought to understand traveling on the road of life. Oftentimes, the falls are not physical falls that result in the breaking of a bone or falling into a pit, but the the difficulties of life, the hardships of life. Oftentimes, it's good to have a friend who can encourage you while you're down, who can remind you, you know what? My friend, it seems like balance is missing. You know, you're so focused on this thing. You've been swept away. Perhaps you should consider some other things. Yeah, I, I noticed that uh, you often seem sad. I want to know why this is. How can I pray for you? And even today, especially today in our times, we see that 
relationships often are lacking. Relationships often are lacking. We're isolated. And it takes great investment in relationships. You think about the fall. When Adam and Eve fell, they lost fellowship with God. But they also lost fellowship with man. That relationships with men and women got broken. And so we think about the various things that we have to do. Think about some horrible substitutes. Horrible substitutes to genuine relationships and community. Well, we've already mentioned one in verse 8. That people realize that they're alone. So, so then they have, they have the, the, the special friend, right? This becomes a friend to them. It's a friend. Or, or you have, in verse 8, talking about immersing ourselves into work. Because when they take time off, they realize, shoot, there's no one I can call who's willing to spend time with me. So I'm just going to keep working. So immersing yourself in work is not an answer. Or, or how, about, how about having 1,000 or 2,000 online friends? Well, what if you actually need a hug? What if you actually need uh, someone to give you an arm around a shoulder? I'm going to tell you, those online friends are absolutely worthless. You think about online friends, you think about online forums, it seems like you have two extremes again. You have your yes-men friends, so whatever you say, they don't provide you any challenge. Just say yes-men. Yes-ma'am or yes-man, whatever it is. Or you get into some really heated debate where there's a whole lot of heat and no light. That also is worthless. Or what about the substitute of, of retail therapy? So you work hard. You don't have any friends, so then you just spend money on things you don't need. And you quickly realize, you know what? That's no fun. That's no replacement for genuine relationships. Or then, then you have also, how about this one? It's costly. It's professional therapy. Instead of having invested in other people who can invest back in you, right, where friendships, there's always a give and take, right? There's this professional therapy where you, since you don't have those relations, you pay people to hear you complain. Those are horrible substitutes. And you think about all that goes on in Christ's church, that Jesus demonstrates himself to be the faithful friend. We read earlier in John 15, verse 13 to 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Here, realize that in order to be a friend, that you have to be vulnerable. There has to be a vulnerability. You have to be able to see people in their need. The desire to meet it. And it requires investment of time and of effort. There has to be a desire to fellowship with others. Relationships take investments. And all of you who are in Christ, who have that good and perfect friend in Jesus Christ, you can understand this. You can understand this much. Investing in a person, in another, always will yield fruit. 
The person may not appreciate it. The person may reject your advice. But at the end of the day, it is Jesus Christ who sees to it that you reap 30, 50, and 100 fold. It's not the result of that person that Jesus sees. What Jesus sees is your willingness to invest. And how, how much is it is that we need relationships in Christ's church? That we are members of one another, members in the body, and that we ought to care for one another. And this should cut across the different ethnicities. It should cut across people who grew up on different continents. It should cut across people who are uh, not one, but two or three generations removed. That in Christ's church we should see such relationships being built. What's wrong with an 18-year-old having a friendship with a 65-year-old? Only the world says that that's wrong. But aren't there a lot of things that, that in wisdom the 65-year-old man could but provide for this 18-year-old man? Aren't there things, the, the youth, the strength, that the 18-year-old could help provide for the 65-year-old? It's only in the world we say, hey, no, 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 that can't happen. There's something wrong. No, in Christ's church, these things can and should happen. So that's the third point about ostracism. We have the fourth point on office. Fourth point on office, verses 13 to 16. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who moved about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Here, talks about the, the topic of rule. How rulers come and rulers go. And that we ought to understand that someone's favor, being in the limelight, whether as a ruler or someone who benefits from the ruler or from the masses, that this favor can and does come to an end. Simple explanation or simple example. You look at the, the beginning of Exodus. So the end of, of Genesis talks about how the sons of Jacob of Joseph and his clan, they moved to Goshen, a land in, in Egypt. And the, the favor was upon them because Israel, uh, Joseph, an Israelite, was prime minister in Egypt. And then things turned bad because in the beginning of, of Exodus said that the new Pharaoh knew not Joseph. And though the Israelites were, if anything, were the favored group in Egypt during the time of Joseph, after Joseph's time, they were enslaved because political rule and favor was lost. And here we have a, a poor and wise youth and an old and foolish king. And verse 14, the poor wise youth went from prison to the throne. Some of you might think that this is very odd. It's not odd because prison is not just a place where people who commit crimes are placed. Prison was often the place where when you disagree with the person in power, you get put there. And this wasn't only true back then, it's true rather regularly. 
All we need to do is look at even the 20th century, right? And people who were political dissidents, right? People who disagreed with the rule of the authority of people in power. You got to shut them up. And one way to do that is you put them in prison. And so this young king, he rises to power. And on one hand, you have the old foolish king. He can no longer listen to people. And that's bad. We're told his time is done. His service is done. His work is done. And regarding this young king, he rises to power. <clears throat> and we're told here, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Are you trusting in the current ruler of your city, your state, your country, the world? Are you trusting to have the favor of that person? You realize that certain political trends and political movements come and then they go. Don't look for it don't, and don't hope for and don't put your trust in the favor of the time, the favor of the king. Understand that Jesus Christ has an eternal reign, that his dominion is an everlasting dominion. What matters is your standing with Jesus Christ. That your standing with Jesus Christ might result in your being spat on and mistreated in this life right now. But you realize that having a right standing with Jesus Christ determines where you will be for an eternity. And his rule will have no end. There won't be another who comes by to supplant him. That if you're in with Jesus and you have his favor, it doesn't matter whose displeasure that you have. That there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. As you think again about the different people who come, rulers, politicians, they have these certain arguments, I'm going to fix I'm going to fix this society's problems in these ways, with these programs, with, with these initiatives. But understand that Jesus came to deal with the core issues. Those issues are actually in your heart. They're yours, not someone else's. The reason why revolutions are so tempting is because the people who are part of those revolutions, they never have to admit that the problem is their own. But in Christianity, you have to realize you are your own worst enemy. And Jesus is the solution to that. We go to our God together in prayer.